Good morning. Good morning. And it's good to be with you here on this rainy Sabbath morning. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the privilege of, of working with you in, in pursuing your goals of saving souls. We look around this world and we see how sick this world is and we know that you are the remedy, the solution, the cure, and we just ask that we can be effective agents in taking you to the world to free hearts and minds and restore us to your eternal kingdom of love and trust. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly God's Mission, My Mission, and the title is Esther and Mordecai, and the memory verse is actually from Isaiah 49.6, and it reads, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The significance of this text. Think of the significance of this message from God in the context of history and how things have worked out. The Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been incredibly blessed specially chosen. They received the prophets and the inspired writings and the object lessons and the teaching tools, the ceremonial system, and the Messiah, God himself, was born of their family tree. What incredible privilege and blessing to be part of that, that group of people. And because of that, Satan has historically targeted this group of people for attack, for abuse, for destruction, because he, in the Old Testament times, was working to try and stop the plan. And he attacked them not just externally, the, much of the record of the Old Testament prophets, the prophets are railing against whom? Are they primarily railing against the nations around Israel, the prophets in the Old Testament? Or are they railing against the rebellion and the betrayal going on in Israel? The, the continual going after false gods, the pagan worship, the betrayal, the adulterous nation. And this is what led to them having such persecution from the nations around because of the rejection of Yahweh, their worshiping of the false gods, they opened themselves up. God withdrew protection and opened themselves up to be mistreated. So I have great admiration and respect for the Jewish people through history, for they were called by God, as Isaiah has written, to be a light to the entire world, to bring salvation to all peoples of the world. But I have a question for you. As we read the, that memory verse, as a nation today, is the nation state of Israel still fulfilling God's purpose to lighten the world with the gospel? No. no way. And if we want to find God's truth for human history at this time in history, do we go to the nation state of Israel to find it? No. no. Jesus said, John eighteen thirty six. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, understand that when Jesus was on earth, it's true that the Jewish nation, the Jewish people were an occupied people, but they still, under Roman, the way Roman system governed, they allowed the Jewish people to still have their kings. Remember King Herod? And their Sanhedrin? and their own police force, the temple guard that Saul of Tarsus used to go and persecute Christians. They still could imprison people. They could still have their own judicial system that they were running. This was all happening as a subjugated people. So when Jesus said these words to Pilate, did he say, my kingdom is not of this world except the nation state of Israel 
is my kingdom. You will find my kingdom as the nation state of Israel runs and governs their people. So when he said my kingdom is not of this world, would that include that nation state? Of course. Do you know how many times that was taught in Bible classes growing up that the Old Testament God had a theocracy and he ran his government the way he wanted it run in Israel? I was taught that many times. Have you ever heard that? Jesus actually refutes that and says that's not my nation state. That's not my government. My government doesn't run like that. That government runs like Rome. A system of rules, imperial system, laws, coercive force, inflicted punishments. That system runs like, that's not my kingdom. And then he goes on to say in other places, the kingdom of God is found where? Within you. Within you. Can you get love, trust, loyalty, friendship by threatening to punish people who don't give you love, trust, loyalty, and friendship? That's why Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, by my Spirit, Spirit of truth and love. Satan, in, in this New Testament times, while Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not among the nations of the world, it's not found here, Satan Matthew 4, 8 to 9, and the devil took Jesus to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the world except Israel. That's what it says, right? No, all the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Satan's claiming all the kingdoms is his. He was right. Including the nation state of Israel. Including the United States. Of course. Including the United States. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Judah, Israel was part of the fallen, rebellious, sinful world and was led by the same unrighteous leaders as the rest of the world and used the same imposed law systems and methods, easily manipulated for selfish purposes. A nation that while used by God to protect the scriptures and be the branch of the human family through whom Messiah would come was not God's kingdom on earth. Think that through. Jesus didn't claim it as his. What about today? Having rejected Jesus as Messiah, does the nation state of Israel today possess the gospel and function as a light to the world? No. So the first point from our memory text is that God called Israel to a mission. And the mission was to be a light to the entire world, to lighten the world to the truth about God and prepare the world for the coming Messiah, the plan of salvation. They were called as a people to, bring, to call the rest of the world to repentance, to trust in the true God, but they themselves rejected the true God when he walked among them and called for his death. They did bring the scriptures down through history and protected them for the world. They did survive as a people so that Messiah could be born among them. So in part, they fulfilled part of the purpose that without their, their existence, well, Jesus would have had to come through another branch of the human family. So we have a lot that we are indebted to and we should respect this people for. And so I, I don't say this in any way to be to vilify. We, we are at the foot of the cross all the same. Okay? There's no, God has no respect of persons. I'm just suggesting that they don't hold, at this time in history, the gospel message. You won't find it there. There's no path of salvation around, outside of, or without Jesus Christ. Amen. That doesn't mean every person who's saved has heard about Jesus Christ. 
but they're still being saved through Jesus Christ. The second paragraph in the lesson says, Esther and Mordecai, her cousin, were Jews living in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. For whatever reason, unlike other Jews who had returned to Judah, they, along with others, remained in the land of their captivity. And there's several lessons I want to draw from these facts. These are facts of history. They're lessons that I think, um, when I first learned them, it, it, it overturned some things that I was taught by my church growing up. Where, at this time in history, at the time of Esther and Mordecai, where had God called the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to be? Back in Israel. Back in Israel. He'd called them back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Most of them didn't go. And most of them didn't go. They were to return to Palestine, rebuild the temple. This was their calling. This was their mission. Where do we find Esther and Mordecai? Where God called them or where he didn't call them? They're still in Persia. So this means, according to the evidence we have, that Esther and Mordecai were not where God called them to be. And they ended up in trouble. When they were not where God called them to be and ended up in trouble, did God abandon them because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do? No. Have you ever heard that if you go into a movie theater, (laughs) your guardian angel will stay outside because you're not where you're supposed to be? But the recording one goes in to record the bad stuff, yep. but the protecting angel doesn't go because you're not where you're supposed to be. You ever heard that? Yes. This story refutes that. This is biblical prima facie evidence that that idea is false. But Tim, God takes our mistakes, and when we give them to him, he uses them. I like where you're going because that's where I'm going too. <laughs> God did not abandon them even though they were not where he instructed them to be. But does that mean they didn't suffer hardship? Mm. Because of their choice to not go back to Jerusalem. Think this through with me. If they had gone back to Jerusalem at the beginning, Mordecai would not have been in the situation where he refused to bow to Haman. That situation would never occurred. He wouldn't have been there. And without the perceived slight, Haman may not have had his attention drawn to the Jews and he may not have plotted to kill them. Had they returned to Jerusalem, Esther would not have become queen and she would not have had to risk her life to go in before the king to try to save them from a threat that may never have appeared had they actually been where God wanted them to be. So one possibility is that their very problems, the very trials, the tribulations we see in the book is a result of their choice not to listen to God and be where he instructed them to go. Yes? Yes. Is that not a reasonable possibility here? But yet, despite their not listening, their not being, getting into trouble from their own choices, did God abandon them? No. No, No, he did not. Instead, he worked through them to protect the line for the Messiah, which Satan was seeking to destroy. This is what's happening in the Old Testament times. This process that I just described to you is a recurring theme we see in the lives of every person who seeks to follow God. God will give us various insights, truths, directions, callings, and we are left free to follow or not follow. If we choose not to listen at that time, right away, we may experience struggles, problems, conflicts, trials that God was trying to protect us from. When we find ourselves in the middle of such straits and call out to God, God, like he did with Esther, is always there to intervene, heal, save, and put us back on the right path. 
every time. Let's give some examples. Jacob. I think we can make a case that Jacob deceiving his brother and deceiving his father was not within God's calling for his life. I think we make a case for that, can't we? He stepped outside of what God was calling him to do in the act of deception and, and so forth. And, and had he not betrayed it, and, and then by the act of betrayal, you can see his life took a certain journey of trials and tribulations, didn't it? Yes, it did. And had he not taken that, he, God would have figured out the way to bring him the blessing that God promised. He didn't have to pursue it. But even though he had to go into these trials 14 years away, all the things that he went through, did God abandon him? And when God was there the whole way, working with him, and when Jacob eventually comes to the point to surrender to him, he's a transformed man. He gets a new name, Israel, one who with God overcomes. He finally overcomes what he's been struggling with. What about Jonah? When God called Jonah to go to a certain place, did Jonah go or did Jonah try to go somewhere else? And did Jonah have certain troubles and tribulations <laughs> that he could have avoided had he gone straight to Nineveh? Did God abandon Jonah? No. How about Samson? Did Samson listen to God's instructions? Or did he deviate from what God called him to do? And did he suffer consequences? Did God abandon him? And when he turned back to God, did God restore him? Yes, absolutely. Now, he didn't actually save his mortal life, but he saved his eternal life. Yes. Amen. What about David? Did David listen and do what God wanted? And what David knew was right in the affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah? Of course not. And did he suffer consequence? And when he turned back to God, oh, in, in that, did God abandon him? Or did God actually pursue him even more by sending Nathan the prophet? Yes. I mean, and there's, you see the pattern. Yes. This is true in our lives as well. God calls us all. He gives us all wisdom, gives us all truths, gives us all convictions, and leaves us all free. Yes? There's a profound truth here because when we sin, Satan says, okay, it's all over for you. Your reputation's ruined. There's nothing more you can do, so you might just as well follow my path now. Yep. And that is not what God says. And that's where we have a heavenly intercessor interceding in the sanctuary where the Spirit dwells, the sanctuary where the Spirit dwells, pleading your case to you. I died for you. I love you. I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. Don't listen to those lies. Trust me. Open your heart. I'll come in, cleanse, restore, and put you back on the right path. This is the real idea of what he's doing in heaven in his pleadings. He's never pleading to the Father to persuade the Father for God so loved the Lord he gave his Son. God is for us. Who can be against us? God is always on our side. Yes? I know from my own personal experience, I grew up in the Adventist faith, and then I had some years of rebellion where I was completely in the world, completely prodigal, son living, party living, and I didn't, I thought I'd hardened my heart to the voice of God's Spirit. I had abandoned him, so I thought he had abandoned me, and uh, and I, God answered the prayers of my family and, and church family, and completely redeemed my life from the darkness and put my path on, back to, rededicate my life to the Lord and to ministry. And as I look back, it's brought me to tears many times, thinking of the goodness of God still working in my life. As I look back and reflect, it was the goodness of God that leaded me to repentance, that goodness of God that I saw through my parents still uh, loving me despite, you know, of myself. And even God using me in spite of myself to still be a blessing to people around me is just amazing. 
And this is the goodness of God. This is exactly how he works. Tim, yes. this makes me think of what's been going on in the news recently and how with the college kids that mm. are pro-Hamas, oh. with everything that's going on, there's been some major corporations who want to know those names of those kids so they will not be hired or accepted in their law firms. And um, I know that everybody probably has heard of Vivek Ramaswamy yeah. and how he's a Republican candidate and how he was speaking, um, I think it was, I've heard him several times saying how it's not fair to go and do that to these kids. They're young and that they, they need direction and guidance. And we are so quick as humans to go and throw each other under the bus. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if God can give us another chance, we seem to be so hard on our own, our own people, our families, our friends, and have a, a higher standard of perfection than what God even does for us. Mm -hmm. If we don't see anything else, it's like, why can we not work with people and be patient with them? Mm -hmm. so, so I hear what you're saying. I think yes. it is an, an exact consequence of the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. When we worship an imperial dictator, and that might not be God, it might be the legal justice system or the evolutionary method that, that the strong in power destroy the weak, but it's all about power over and controlling others, the worldly system of satanic delusion, and it could be religious uh, authority dominating or worldly authority dominating. You become like that, and you want to seek to punish those who break your rules. That's the way justice works. But when you actually understand design law and the principles of God's kingdom, then you understand these things we're talking about. And these stories are there to reveal reality to us. These are the stories that I went through from scripture. And then our own life experience re reveal reality to us. That when we deviate from God's design laws, you might call them laws of health, we always injure ourselves. You cannot have health while violating the laws of health. Whether that's physical, mental, spiritual, relational, you are always damaged when you break from the laws of health. You can't avoid the healing consequence that comes from harmonizing with them. And so God lets us make the free choice. We will suffer consequence when that suffering comes and we don't know the way out. We turn to our creator. He is right there, not only to pick us up, but to teach us his methods, his ways to put us back in harmony. And then we begin to live and thrive again. This is how reality works. These are what these stories, stories are for. And they're to disabuse us of this idea that the pain and suffering comes out as an infliction from an authoritarian rule maker. That's how the world works. No, the consequences come from our own choices in breaking how reality works. Amen. We see the same pattern that I just went through in the story of Esther, which we're talking about today. Her story raises her, the same pattern of God calling they're not listening. They're resulting in painful consequences. God not abandoning. They're turning back to God for deliverance. God delivers. We see the same pattern that we see all through history. But Esther raises some more troubling questions. Let's review the setting. Xerxes is having a great banquet and a lot of alcohol is being served and he calls for Queen Vashti, who's supposed to be incredibly beautiful so he can show her off to all the counselors. And... Um, and she refuses to come. You know the story. The counselors counsel Xerxes to strip her of her, her position, forbid her to ever enter his presence again and replace her with another queen. So Xerxes removes Vashti and starts a search for a replacement. The most beautiful virgins throughout the entire empire are brought to the palace and placed in Xerxes' harem. 
they, the women undergo 12 months of beauty treatments. <laughs> they do, 12 months of beauty treatments. And then one by one, they each go in and spend an evening with the king. And after they leave from the king's uh, interview process, <laughs> they are taken to where the concubines are kept under the governance of one of the king's eunuchs. That's what the story says. Yes, it's true. What is likely reason that after the interview with the king, they go in to live with the concubines? Yeah. They're a concubine. <laughs> Could it be they're a concubine now? Yes. And, what, and if they're now a concubine, what was likely the, the essence of the interview? Right. <laughs> They were virgins going in, concubines coming out. We got it. Okay? Okay, I'm just putting out, there's a troubling story here. So, Esther is your adopted daughter, cousin that you've adopted, and you're the male head of the home, and you are now responsible for health and welfare. What would you advise Esther to do? Go to England. <laughs> That's what happened to the young woman in Swaziland who was seen on television by the king. Which, what, and what year was that? Um, maybe 30 years ago. Okay, so England at Esther's time would have been the pagan picks and... <laughs> no, they quickly sent her to, uh, in 24 hours, they got her out of the country. Yeah, this is a different time, isn't it? So... Still goes on, is my point. Yeah, yeah we're... we're you're Esther's guardian, follower and worshiper of Yahweh. Do you take the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego approach? Stand up and say no. Just say no. Is that the, is that the advice she got from Mordecai? No, no. What did Mordecai actually tell her to do? Maybe he had a premonition that God was using these circumstances to bring her to be hmm. So he advised her to go in and become part of the uh, virgin applicants. <laughs> he, this is what he advised her to do. With her application, she's applying for the job, um, interview process, the interview. Would, would the interview process be adultery? Fornication, at least. <laughs> hmm. She stood up and said no. Would it, but would it be adultery for her to marry a man who put away his wife for political reasons? Yes, according to Jesus. Well, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. I say if you lust, but then he also goes on to say, um, I say if you lust after faith, and anyone who causes her, and anyone who, who marries the, 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 causes her to commit adultery? You know, the, you know the text. Hmm. Bible that Mordecai was complicit in this. It says she was brought to the king's house. No, you're, you're, you're only reading one. Read the whole story. Mordecai actually advised her. But again, God works with our plan A, B, C. Some, some of you look a little uncomfortable at this conversation. <laughs> What about Esther's agency and accountability? Could she not have said no, even against his advice? And maybe that's why he chose her. It's a, it's a, <laughs> I think it's a story about the transformation of her character as well. For Jesus' words about uh, anyone who marries a divorced uh, woman uh, commits adultery, uh, only true. So any, would that only be true for marrying a divorced woman, not marrying a divorced man? She could have taken a dagger with her. <laughs> 
So, so we can avoid the sin of adultery by committing the sin of murder. Okay. Tim. Yes. Wasn't that the custom of the day? And even Abraham took another wife. Yes, Abraham was highly blessed for his second wife, wasn't he? <laughs> she didn't make it right, but God's hmm. we're, we're talking about design law here, folks. How does this? I'm, I'm pointing out to you some struggles. Uh, the stories are there for our consideration. Uh, hmm. You're married. Is so, it, yeah, is, it culture? is this culturally driven? So we have cultural exceptions to God's guidance in the Ten Commandments. No. Hmm. Well, what is sin according to Scripture? Transgression. That is the King James version, uh, to, uh, absolute translation of the text. Yes, for, I think it's First John three eight or something along those lines. Um, Sin is lawlessness, as you say. In other translations, it's actually the Greek means lawlessness and and, 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 to, and no, anomia outside the law. Okay, lawlessness is different than it has a different flavor to it. What does it mean to be lawless without the law, outside the law? What law? A list of rules, behaviors, or the laws of health? And then Paul says in Romans chapter fourteen, twenty verse twenty three. Anything that is not of faith, faith is, sin. is sin. Oh, wait a second now. Everything is not of faith. And, and the Greek for faith is the same word for trust. Pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, trust, confidence, faith. So anything that breaks trust with God is sin. So it's relational. It's, it's, it's do we love God? Are we faithful? Are we loyal? Are we friends? Do we betray God? And what is adultery? At its root, it's betrayal. That's why they, the Jewish people were called in the Old Testament constantly by God an adulterous generation. generation. Why? Because they were giving their hearts loyalty to other people. Hmm. So with that in mind, and culturally understanding, did women, and this is a, this is a question, in, in this culture, at this time in history, did women have the same freedom to choose to initiate marriage and or divorce? No. She may not have had a legal right to refuse to go. And who was it that brought her to the attention of the authorities that rounded up all these versions? This is where I'm getting. Did the women at that time have the right or the ability culturally to initiate their own marriages or divorces? And in fact, women were property of the the male head of the household. That's why when her parents died, Mordecai, the cousin, the cousin becomes her guardian, if you will. Authority in the culture. It takes Mordecai's authority, permission for her to go off and marry someone. She can't do it on her own. Do you think that the women um, had a suffrage movement? going. <laughs> in other words, do you think the women had, the, you know, a women's right move? Or do you think many of the women uh, being raised in the culture adopted in this belief system of subservience and God's will for their life to follow the leadership of their husbands? And thus it's, it's with good conscience following what my, my, my cousin authority male head has told me to do this with good conscience. That's what I'm supposed to do. 
Vashti tried to start that movement. Yeah, that yes, and Vashti tried to start it, and what did the men do? <laughs> they said, we know the times. If we allow this, every woman will disrespect her husband. Yes, and what had 1972 bra burning contests there going on. <laughs> burn the burqa. Yeah, burn the burqa. Right, and so, so they put that down very forcefully, didn't they? Yes. Yes, and so again, back to Esther. Do you think she was taking actions that were violating her conscience or was she conscientiously doing what she actually believed in her heart was the right and virtuous thing? So is it about the act now or is it about the intent to honor God, honor one's family, honor one's nation, fulfill one's duty? You can't get where we're going by a system of rules. You have to understand principles. Yes. I had read through the passage and you were mentioning earlier about Mordecai's advising her and I don't see where he advised her until after she was there. And therefore, you wonder if they went house to house looking for these women and living in that empire, did he even have a choice? When he advised her, what was his advice? To go along to get along. Not to say that she was a yeah, and not Yeah, not to reveal. And so did he advise her to, to stand up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against the no, gods of, no. uh, of Persia, to stand up against the fiery furnace and the threats? Did he advise her to go against that stuff? No. That's my point. He was looking out for his own height, really. Well, he could have, though. Yeah. He could have. Whenever the advice is finally given, regardless of the timeline, when he gave the advice, he could have said, no, you're, we're followers of Yahweh. You need to stand up and tell those people you will not submit to this. They can rape you, but you will not voluntarily go in and be a, a loving participant to this king. Now, if she had had that attitude, do you think he would have chosen her? No. So I suspect she went in with a very positive attitude towards the king. Absolutely. Maybe... Her attitude was like that of Rahab's. She didn't, they were stepping out in faith, doing what they thought was best to serve God at that time, based on limited awareness. So the point I'm trying to make here is that you'll find many stories in the Bible that rules don't apply. You can't get to the right answer with rules. When did the intimate relations between David and Bathsheba no longer constitute sin for David? Mm. <laughs> when he looked, he repented. So if you're committing adultery today, and you've already married to somebody else, yeah. and you're having an affair with somebody you're not married to, and you go to your pastor, because or your pastor comes to you, Nathan, Nathan, your pastor Nathan comes to you, and you're under conviction, and you repent, will Pastor Nathan say, now you need to marry the woman? Or will Pastor Nathan say, if you repent... Oh, bigamy is biblical. Okay. We're going to get there. Okay. But you say repentance. Does repentance mean turning toward the object of your sin or turning away from the object of your sin? But did David turn away or did he turn toward her? So he turned toward her. So then we say, well, it's when he married her. So then, so marriage, uh, God's, God's design of one man and one woman is really subject to our culture. And if I moved to Saudi Arabia today, where polygamy is legal, then it would be perfectly righteous for me to take a second, third, and fourth wife. He couldn't abandon Bathsheba at that point. He had ruined her. Wait, wait, wait. But, but, but I'm asking the question <laughs> about polygamy right now. We're going to get there. Yes, because you're, you're on the right trail. Okay? But, but this is the answers you get from rule people. Rule people say you can't marry, the rules say it's sin. Rule people say that you have to turn away from. In David's case, he did not turn away from Bethsheba. He turned toward her because 
when you understand design law, the principles of God's kingdom, repentance is, sim- is not simply turning away from an act or a deed. Repentance is actually having your heart transformed away from self-centeredness where you're willing to exploit other people to self-sacrificial love where you're willing to save and build up other people. And after this act, David not only had to have his heart changed, if he's truly repentant, his energies are now toward restoring what he took. And what he took from Bathsheba he took everything from He took her in that culture, he took her name, he took her reputation, took he her took husband. her he, yeah. we're, we're gonna get there. Okay. Would that not been real love and real for changes to leave her to go back to her husband? He took her name, he took her reputation, he took her station, he took her honor, he took her husband, the one who loved and cherished her and esteemed her above all others. He took all of these things from her and if he was going to restore, he had to in that culture, she couldn't own property. She had no position. She had no station. She had no name. The only way to restore all those things to her was to marry her and to love and cherish her to restore. And this is why after his sin with Bathsheba and after his true repentance, you read in Psalms 51, and after he marries her, he is a man after God's own heart because uh-huh. he builds her up. And, and God gives an object lesson in this, in this entire sordid detailed story, a beautiful object lesson, his Actions with Bathsheba based off of selfishness and exploitation results in a pregnancy that ends up in death. After his repentance and and turning toward her and taking her in love to restore, it results in a pregnancy that ends up in a child of wisdom, Mm -hmm. Solomon. Wow. It's really powerful. What about no. his first wife? Yeah, wow. that's what I'm saying. Yes, So, so this is the whole point. This is the whole point. Uh, the, the, the question wasn't about them at all. It was about how does he restore right. the damage he's taken. Right. Oh. Right. Okay, yes. You're alluding to these things, and maybe most people here already know this, but I'm just, I just started listening to some of your sermons recently on the internet, and you did one uh, six, seven years ago on like seven levels of obedience. Yeah. And where you talked about, you know, anybody that's in the first four levels is going to have a real problem with this that's correct. talking about. That's right. They just can't get past the rules are not being kept here. That's right. But but when you begin to understand the level, like you said, design law, level five and six and seven, then, then we can start understanding these stories better in the Bible. And that moves us back into harmony with how God created reality to work rather than a system of rules. Now listen to this thinking along these lines you just said. Sunday's lesson, second, second and third paragraph. Get your, get your mind around what the lesson's saying here. None of us, for instance, lives in an Adventist country where the principles of our faith are, to some degree, by the law of the land. But before being deported to Jewish, uh, the Jewish people had been living in their own country where the principles of their faith were also enshrined in the law of the land. On one level, think how easy that should have made it to be faithful to God. After all, how much easier would it be to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath if, in fact, keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath were enshrined in the legal codes of the nation? (laughs) I want you to understand, as I read this, (laughs) I had to laugh to keep from crying. Let me me break it down for you. This this statement is is the kind of statement that when Jesus would have said to something like to to this, he would have said, the blind leading the blind. There is such blindness. I'm going to show it to you. Watch this. 
If in fact this is true, let's think this through. Why were the Jew- Jewish people at the time of Esther in a foreign land? <laughs> Because they'd been taken captive by Babylon some 70 years before. And why were they taken by, captive by Babylon 70 years before? Because they'd been unfaithful, rebellious, disloyal to God. But how could they have been unfaithful and loyal to God if they had the principles of their faith enshrined in their legal code that made it so much easier for them to obey? <laughs> this is absurd. It's exactly the opposite, folks. When you set up a system of legal codes to coerce consciences, you incite rebellion. You incite rebellion. It's one of Satan's lies that God's law functions like human law, and when you believe that, you have the inability to see what's actually transpiring in reality. Do anybody read my blog for this week? Yes. It's a perfect opportunity to soar. I get this question all the time. Why, if God's government is design law, as you describe here, and we see many of them, we love the idea of it, but if that's true, why did God give so many laws in the Old Testament? And they, and they will quote numbers, they'll quote Exodus, quote Deuteronomy, specifically uh, laws that if somebody's caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath, they should be stoned and killed. Why does he give these laws if, if that's an arbitrary, that's a made-up rule, that's an inflicted punishment? If God's kingdom is like what I say, why is, what's this going on here? I gave them statutes and judgments that were not good, that they should not read by them. Read the blog view and all the details, but it's very straightforward and very simple. The rules given to Israel were for the setting up of a civil government in a sinful world to bring order and stability to a rebellious, unrighteous, self-centered, sinful people who did not have reborn hearts to love God and others, people who had not experienced the new covenant of having the law written upon their hearts and minds, and people functioning upon the same me-first, fear-based, survival of the fittest principles of the godless world, people who were just freed from being slaves to pagans. This is what it was for. The imposed rules were not intended to represent how God's government works. Rather, they were intended to establish societal order among this sinful people to protect them from decaying into infighting, political intrigue, tribal wars, which was already starting with Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and their rebellion already starting so that, they could, so that this people could stay organized enough to accomplish the mission for which they were called, keep the scriptures intact, and be the avenue through which Messiah could come. That's what was going on in Old Testament times. Nothing to do with setting up the kingdom of God. In Romans 13, Paul makes this very clear when he describes how God uses the imposed systems of human governments to provide a certain stability and order in a sinful world, but he contrasts it with the law of love that's to be written on your heart. They're not the same. And then he goes on in, in Galatians 13 to tell you that God added laws for two reasons to provide order, stability, to protection, and to diagnose the sickness of sin in our hearts. And the laws that he's added were both the ceremonial and specifically in Galatians, the Ten Commandments were added. And so many of the penal legalists in our own midst deny that the Ten Commandments, this is the 1888 division. If the 1888 division in the Adventist church, the message that was to lighten the world for, for the second coming of Christ was the Ten Commandments were an added law because we needed them. And the legalists in our midst say, oh no, only the ceremonial law was added. You don't have to think too deeply to figure out the Ten Commandments were not always in existence. Sin began in heaven, and sin is lawlessness outside of God's law. And the angels in heaven did not have a law to honor their mothers. They didn't have a law that sins passed down three and four generations to beings who don't procreate. They didn't have a law not to commit adultery for beings who don't marry. 
okay? This codification of the law of God was specifically written for fallen sinful human beings and the need that we found ourselves in to convict us of what's wrong and lead us to Christ so that we will say, hey, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm fearful, I'm self-centered. I need healing, I need a new heart. And then I will write my law on your hearts and minds. And that law is the law of love, the law of truth, the law of liberty, the principles of God, the living law that is only truly seen in living beings. Tim, yeah. people make conclusions about the character of God based on these stories in the Old Testament, but don't they have to be compatible with the life of Christ yes. and the character he revealed? Exactly right. Amen. And, and, and when we read the Old Testament through imposed human law, this bias, then we draw these false conclusions about God. And this is why there's a special message for the end of time. The three angels' messages, which were called back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, were called back to creator worship. And the creator's laws are the laws upon which reality are constructed to operate. Created beings can't build reality. We can't build space, time, energy, matter. And our laws are not the protocols that hold all the fabric of the cosmos together. We make up rules that re- require inflicted punishments. And when we teach God's law works like human law, we actually end up worshiping a created being, a creature, rather than the creator. This is the big key. And the special message is to go back to creator worship. Stop worshiping an imperial dictator who is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death and must use his power to kill you. And needs a payment from a blood sacrifice of a human being in order to have your legal debt paid so he won't lash out again. That's all paganism. It's all human law construct. And God showed us this again with the stories of the Old Testament. Every time... God used power to protect the line of the Messiah. And that's the, the big theme of the Old Testament is Genesis, God creates, mankind sins. Genesis 3.15, God promises Messiah. The rest of the Old Testament is the focus on fulfilling that promise. That's the whole Old Testament theme. And that's why the, the focus goes where it does. At the time of the flood, we have a global focus. So the whole world's in rebellion and Satan's working to destroy the avenue. After the flood, we narrow very quickly to Abraham and his children through Isaac and his children through Jacob because that's the avenue through whom Messiah is going to come. And the battle is raging back and forth through Old Testament times and God is constantly working to set hedges of protection and other interventions and therapeutic actions to stop Satan's plan to destroy this branch of the human family through whom Messiah is going to come. That's the whole narrative. And, and when you understand that narrative, you will see that God did use power and might at times, like the flood. Big time power for what purpose? Keep open avenue for Messiah, because at that time in history, only one righteous man left on the whole earth, the whole planet, only one. There's only one family, Noah and his family, willing to work with God for Messiah to come. If, if we can get rid of that family, Satan closes the door, Messiah can't come. So God acts not to punish sin, to keep open avenue for Messiah. But that's a major use of power right there. And what happened after that use of power? They're building a tower very shortly later. And they're building the tower because they love and trust God or they don't love and trust God. And then we have other examples. The 10 plagues of Egypt, mighty power, parting the Red Sea, thundering at Sinai. And what did God get from that? We're worshiping a golden calf and their rebellion with Korodath and Abiram and on and on and on the rebellions go. And then Mount Carmel, fire comes down from heaven. The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And after that display of power, Israel was faithful and loyal for the rest of the time. No, back into rebellion. The point is God is demonstrating. Yes, he's using power to stop the assaults of Satan to destroy the line of the Messiah. 
But those uses of power never resulted in faith and loyalty. It always resulted in more rebellion. You can't get trusted friends by scaring them to death. Right. Yes. I was at a Sunday Bible study this past Wednesday, and this was brought up, and I tried to, not very well, explain the line of Messiah. Okay, why Abraham? Why couldn't it have been anybody before Abraham? It could have been. Was it just? It could have been. You're saying, why couldn't it have been? God chose Abraham for the reasons that God chose Abraham that we haven't, haven't been fully disclosed, but God looking down the corridors of time, seeing all the variables that are impacting, seeing the various descendants, seeing the attacks, seeing the actions you have to take. My view is that Abraham had faith, but he wasn't the only person. Noah had faith, but Noah was also in the line, obviously, right? Okay. And the promise was, was not given to Abraham first. It was given to Adam in Eden first. This is the problem given to Adam. The promise was there. It was repeated to Abraham. Abraham, you're the one through the promise of Genesis 3, 15. It's your family. It was given to Isaac and given to Jacob, but the promise did not start with, with Abraham. Okay, that's, yeah, thank you. All right, I'm going to have to jump up because our time has flown by. We're going to jump into Wednesday's lesson. And the Wednesday's lesson and this is uh, perhaps the most important and often quoted text out of Esther, Esther 4, 13 and 14. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet you know, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I mean, haven't we all heard that before? So can this sentiment, this idea, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, be true for each one of us in various places of time? That God can say, who knows that you haven't come to this place and time in human history for such a time as this? And in fact, I believe that's true, that God has a call out right now for people at this time in history for a particular mission and a particular message. And I want to share... As I was studying for class this week, I came across uh, some uh, writings from one of the founders of the Adventist church uh, named Ellen White, and it was found, uh, th- these writings are found in a collection called the Cress Collection. It's a very interesting collection. I'm going to share this writings with you and, and see if you, you can identify and, and believe that you're called in the way this is described. And, and think about where we are, what we're talking about, see what you think about this. It's, it's fairly, we're going to go into it, but see what you think. In God, it is God's design to manifest through his people the principles of his kingdom. Yes. Let's stop right there. What are the principles? Are those rules? Love, trust, love. Principles are rules. Truth, love, freedom. God is the source of all truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Spirit is the spirit of truth. Principles of God's kingdom will be truth embodied and lived out in love. We present the truth in love and we leave people free. These are the big principles. These are design laws. And when we live in harmony with God's design laws across the landscape of our whole being, what happens in us? We become healthier, happier, holier, and reveal more fully the truth in our very being. And you'll notice the next part of the quote. His people, the principles of his kingdom that in life and character they may reveal these principles. 
He desires to separate them from the customs, habits, and practices of the world. Now, does this mean only villainy and perversion and crime and abuse and, and unhealthy food choices and, and what we drink? Is that, the, is that what's, Or could this also be this customs, habits, and practices of the world also include the customs, habits, and practices of how the world pursues justice through their penal legal mechanisms and enforcements of laws of coercing of consciences? Can you continue on with the quote? He seeks to bring them near to him that he may make known to them his will. To the same work he has called his people in this generation. To them he has revealed his will, and of them he requires obedience. In the last days of earth's history, the voice that spoke from Sinai is still saying to men, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is this restricted, this this idea of no other gods before Yahweh, restricted to being preached to the godless pagans? Or do we recognize that when we replace the truth of God's design law with human imposed laws and teach that Jesus died to pay a penalty to his father so his father won't kill us, that we are now worshiping a false god? That worshiping a creature in place of the creator. Man, continue on the quote, man has set his will against the will of God, but he cannot silence the word of command. The human mind can never fully comprehend its obligation to the higher, to the higher power, but it cannot evade the obligation. Profound theories and speculations may abound, may uh, try to set science in opposition to revelation and thus do away with the law of God, but stronger and still stronger will the Holy Spirit bring before them the command Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Consider the generations here over the last uh, hundred years now, the generations that have been raised on the lie of godless evolution. But their false theories do not change objective reality. And look at what is happening to the world wherever godless evolution is taught and believed. Decay, disintegration, loss of common decency. Continue with the quote. How is the world treating the law of God? Everywhere men are working against the divine precepts. Even the churches are taking sides with the great apostate. Hmm. How would the church take a side with an imperial dictator, coercive, authoritative government? I mean, the churches would never align themselves with federal and state governments to coerce the consciences of their people to participate in an experimental medical injection that they don't want, would they? They wouldn't threaten their, their enrollment in their, in their Christian colleges and high schools. They wouldn't threaten their employment at the Christian hospitals or the Christian... They wouldn't threaten them if you don't take this injection that you don't want in your body as an asymptomatic and healthy person. Or, or did, or, and they certainly wouldn't collude with the government to shut their churches down and stop their uh, ministries, would they? For a period of time. That, that never happened to any of our churches, did it? And don't touch each other. Uh, it's unbelievable how easily the churches and the church leaderships were duped into aligning with beastly systems and applying beastly methods. Yep. All for money. Partly for money. A lot of it for money. Uh, I wouldn't say it was all for money. But a lot of it was money. There's no question. Power, Power, authority, control. But when you worship an imperial dictator, 
the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, you become like the imperial dictator. And it only seems right and just to do that. I mean, after all, we're trying to save lives here. For the common good. For the common good. This common good is a theme you will hear coming out of the Vatican. For the common good, for the common good, for the common good. We need to do this. We need to, we need to do all the things we're doing on this environmental stuff for the common good. We need to have a weekly day of rest where everybody turns off their engines for the common good. <laughs> no, it's true. It's coming. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's all a lie. Understand, everything you're being told about the whole environmental climate change stuff, it's a lie. Yes. Exactly. And, and, and if you want to read about that, go to our website and put in the climate change. Read my blogs about it. I'll show you the scripture and I'll show you the science and show you everything is an exact lie. And it's a contradiction to God's promise about how the seasons would continue until the second coming after the fall, after, after the flood. So we, we have God's word against these human fraudulent scientists. And, and if you look at the activity, what they're doing, their intentions are to take to incite fear so that you'll surrender control to an authoritarian government to take away your liberties. Exactly. This is what's happening in the world. Let's continue with the quote. Men in their blindness boast of wonderful progress and enlightenment, but the heavenly see the earth filled with corruption and violence. Because of sin, the atmosphere of our world has become an atmosphere of a pest house. Do you see this degradation in our society, in our own lifetime? Have you seen the corruptions in our cities, the, the open drug abuse, the rioting, the violence, the gang shoplifting, the hatred of truth, the hatred of virtue, the rejection of objective reality, the hatred of God's design for marriage and families, uh, the devaluing of human life? The, within the medical community across the world now, they are pushing for doctor-assisted death. A great work is to be accomplished in saying before men the saving truths of the gospel. This is the means ordained by God to stem the tide of moral corruption. This is the means of restoring his moral image in man. It is his remedy for universal disorganization. It is the power that draws men together in unity. What is God's means? The presentation of the gospel, the truth, presented in love while leaving people free. What is not the means? It is not the method of law, of force, of coercion, of threat, of imprisonment, of physical wars, of intimidation, uh, of politics, of control of conscience, of economic wars, of, of sanctions. This is not the method. It's the method of the gospel, the good news, the truth that sets hearts free. Because what God wants, understand, he wants our loyalty. He wants our love. He wants our trust. He wants our faithfulness to him. You can't get that by threatening to hurt people. You can't get that through legislation. You can't get that through law enforcement. You can only get that through the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Continuing on. The pres to present these truths is the work of the third angel's message. Do you understand the third angel's message has been grossly corrupted yes. in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Yes. It has been corrupted with a penal legal theory and a punishing God, and the third angel's message is used to teach that if you don't obey the right day of the week, God will torture you in hell as long as you deserve before he kills you. Yep. That's paganism. Yep. It is Satan's version of God. It's untrue. The true position of the three angels' message, and if you don't have it, take our magazine out here, the final message of mercy to the world, the three angels, or get it online and download it. 
it's, it's simply a revelation of reality. It's a return to reality. It's about worship. And it starts with the eternal good news that's eternally good in eternity past and eternity future, the good news about God. And when you worship him who made the heavens and the earth, you return to creator worship, then you become like him and you leave the confused system of all these laws and rules that don't seem to make sense, this Babylonian system. And and then when you you leave that system, then you are not going to be marked beastly in mind in the forehead or in your works because you won't practice those beastly methods of coercion upon other people and you will not suffer those consequences. But if you instead reject the eternal gospel, if you prefer a God that looks like Satan, a system of rules and rule enforcement, then you will be part of the Babylonian system of confusion and you will mark yourself in your forehead and your hand and your works to be beastly because you will justify the use of coercion on the other, other people's consciences. And then when the law of love and truth burns freely again, you will come into full awareness of the corruption that remains in your character and you will suffer weeping and gnashing of teeth because God will no longer shield you. He will stop using his power that has been protecting you all this time and he will let you step into the reality of his presence and you will no longer be able to deny how corrupt you are and you will suffer the unmitigated weight that sin does to a person and you will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels in the Lamb. In their presence, that's where it happens because that's where ultimate truth and love are and the righteous will live there. This is just returning things to reality. This is the third angel's message. We need to present it right. The Lord designs that the presentation of the message shall be the highest, greatest work carried on in our world at this time, that this work may be carried forward on correct lines. He has directed the establishment of schools, sanitariums, publishing houses, and other institutions. In these institutions, the attributes of God are to be, up, uh, to be unfolded, and the, glor- and the glory and excellence of the truth is to be made to appear more vivid. But instead, our institutions have become infected with imperialism, with Romanism, the Roman imperial law contract, with pagan punishing God who required the blood of a human sacrifice not to kill us. And if we want to accomplish the mission and hasten the day, then we have to reject the entire theory of penal legal substitution and the punishing God construct. The Lord years ago gave me special light in regard to the establishment of the health institutions where sick could be treated on altogether different lines from those who followed any other institution in our world. It was to be founded and conducted on Bible principles as the Lord's instrumentality. Those who had any connection with this institution were to be educated in health-restoring principles. Understand, when, when she had this vision and went this direction, the medical world were leeching people, bleeding people. They were using various poisons. They called them medicines such as mercury, strychnine, and other types of things were the medicines they were giving people. And she was saying, no, you have to get back to the laws of health. You have to harmonize with how God created life, the principles of God, not a system of, of, of rules that you have to follow. The human family is suffering because of transgression of the laws of God. This is what I said earlier. You can't have health while violating the laws of health. Satan is constantly urging men to accept his principles and thus he seeks to counterwork the work of God. In his principles, it is right, it is good to punish lawbreakers. It's only just. It's not fair those people doing this evil over here that you could get away with it. You need, to, you need to get some political power. You need to get yourself a donor base. You need to go out there and get the right officials elected. You need to get a hold of your, of your military and your police force so you can go arrest these people and punish them. That's what justice looks like. This is the big trap that's coming on the world. And this is why you see, 
this is why you see such outrageous things happening from the left. Yes. Yes. It's to incite outrage in the yes. people that identify God as, and Jesus Christ as their savior so that you'll be so offended that you will actually embrace his method to take power and control into your hands to punish them and put them down. That's it. That's true. He is constantly presenting the chosen people of God as deluded people. He is an accuser of the brethren. He is accusing, and his accusing power, he is constantly using against those who work righteousness. The Lord desires through his people to answer Satan's charges by showing the result of obedience to right principles. And then, still greater truths are unfolding for this people as we draw near to the close of time. And God designs that we shall everywhere establish institutions where those who are in darkness in regard to the needs of the human organism may be educated and they in turn may lead others into the light of health reform. The blind leaders of the blind must learn the truth in regard to healthful living as taught in scriptures. Do you think you can have a healthy body with an unhealthy mind? No. No. Do you think you have a healthy mind with an unhealthy belief system in God? No. No. You can't. If you believe fear, and this is what my book, The God-Shaped Brain, is about. When you believe lies about God, it incites fear. When you incite fear, you activate amygdala. When you activate amygdala, it drives inflammatory cascades and causes all types of physiological health problems. It's well documented. And I want to tell you, I'm now the medical director at Honey Lake Clinic, and this clinic is composed of Christians from various denominational backgrounds who all embrace the design law view. They understand that we're integrated beings created in the image of God, and that we can only have healing as we heal the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. And they want to use biblical principles. They're active in engaging, bringing biblical principles to bear to the whole person down here. And why is the Honey Lake Clinic rising up to do this? Because the Adventist church has failed to do this. Wow. I'll say it straight. The Adventist church has done an incredible job of physiological health. But they have rejected the healing of the whole soul in the person. The healing of the the mental healing. They have not embraced the true principles. And the spirit and and bringing the the principles of God into the spirit as well. Gracious Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you are our creator. You are absolutely trustworthy. We see you revealed perfectly in Jesus Christ. And there is no split amongst the Godhead. At this time in history, Lord, you've called for people to stand up and say of you what is right. Sometimes, Lord, I get a little intense and passionate. I I pray that you will give me the right spirit that I can say these things in in love and, and be compassionate to those who are struggling from a different perspective. I pray for our team all here and, and around the world who are sharing this message that your spirit will fall upon them and you will, the latter rain will empower them and enlighten them. And, and this message can truly go forward because the world so much needs your light, your remedy to bring order, to bring healing and to bring your eternal kingdom. We pray for this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.